Welcome to Eastern Europe's Minorities in a Century of Change, a podcast on the history of minority experiences in Central and Eastern Europe during the 20th century. I'm Dr. Samuel Foster, co-organiser for the Bassi Study Group for Minority History. This series is part of the Institute for Historical Research's Centennial Commemorations, Our Century, Looking Back, Thinking Forward, and has been organised by the study group. It was made possible through the help and support of the British Association of Slavonic and East European Studies and the Stanley Burton Centre for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at the University of Leicester. The study group is a forum devoted to researching minorities in the national and regional histories of Central, Eastern and Southeastern Europe and promoting closer scholarly collaborations. For more information, please visit our website at studygroupforminorityhistory.com On this episode, Cathy Carmichael, Professor of European History at the University of East Anglia, talks to us about Bosnia-Herzegovina under the period of Austro-Hungarian rule from 1878 to 1918. Cathy, welcome to the podcast. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in this area of history? Well, thank you very much for inviting me to speak today, um, Samuel. It's, it's, it's really interesting to be part of this series. Um, I started off as an early modernist um, very many years ago and wrote my dissertation on Zeknisko Jezero in Slovenia. Um, it's an interesting uh, subject because it's a disappearing lake, so it was, it, it, it was about what the local people did to respond to the environment. And the limestone cast, uh, which stretches down the whole of the coast from Slovenia, Croatia, Bosnia and Herzegovina down to Montenegro, um, has always fascinated me. The, 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 the landscape it produces, the, 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 the life of the people. Um, but living in Slovenia in the, in the late 1980s drew me into other subjects and particularly um, I became interested in nationalism. Uh, it was an era when new states were forming from, from the embers of the old Yugoslavia and everything was very dynamic. And this interest in nationalism also led me to study Bosnia, Herzegovina and Montenegro. So my recent research um, has been on the caste regions of Herzegovina, particularly, as you said, under Austria-Hungary. So it doesn't feel like too much of a departure, even though I started off in a very different kind of place. For the benefit of our listeners, what was Austria-Hungary and how did it come to rule over Bosnia-Herzegovina in 1878? Well, that's a good question. And it's a question that local people asked as well. Um, Austria-Hungary, the Habsburg monarchy, was ruled by Emperor Franz Josef. Um, after 1848, and it was given the right in international law at the Congress of Berlin to occupy Bosnia and Herzegovina, even though it was still nominally part of the Ottoman Empire. And the Habsburg troops took the territory in the summer of 1878, but encountered some resistance from the local population, who were actually quite hostile to this takeover. Um, in 1908, the Habsburg monarchy annexed Bosnia and Herzegovina, which caused a real disruption in the international balance of power and one of what was one of the causes of war in 1914. Okay. 
Your research has come to focus on um, Bosnia and Herzegovina's southern border territories, notably the southeastern part of Herzegovina, but also southern Dalmatia, where our listeners might be familiar with the um, World, World Heritage Site of Dubrovnik. What was the significance of this area in relation to the wider occupation of Bosnia-Herzegovina? Well, the, th- the two are linked. The Habsburgs had controlled Dalmatia since the end of the Napoleonic era and had faced a conscription rebellion in Krivoshia in 1869. And when they occupied Herzegovina, they were forced to govern a population that had rebelled against Ottoman rule in 1875. The Ottoman population of both Krivoshia, sorry, the Orthodox population of both Krivoshia and Herzegovina rebelled against them in 1882 again. So we have an area which is characterised by rebellion, particularly against conscription. So what we see is the fact that the Orthodox populations were not fully reconciled to Habsburg rule, while Catholics and Muslims, the other populations in Bosnia and Herzegovina, gradually came to accept it. Um, It's also interesting to me um, because the southern flank of the monarchy became heavily armed with garrisons and forts and a large population of soldiers from all over the realm. It's fascinating. Um, So just focusing on these soldiers, first of all, what sort of activities were they actually engaged in when they were being deployed, after they were deployed? And what sort of impact did this have on these places like... um, sort of Trebi these sort of major towns like Trebinia and as well as the and as well as well for want of a better word the indigenous the lives of the indigenous population oh well <laughs> yes that's a uh, an interesting question a lot of these soldiers were conscripts um not career officers so they didn't necessarily want to be in Herzegovina and they passed their time there as well as they could getting to know the locality uh, traveling around hunting exploring caves and drinking Dalmatian wine in prodigious quantities. The sizeable garrisons at Trebinia and Bilecha were not really the most popular postings. A lot of soldiers regarded them as too hot in the summer and perhaps too far away from places that they wanted to be. But almost all the soldiers liked Dalmatia. And after 1901, when there was a new train line um, um, put in, um, this linked uh, Herzegovina to the coast, so trips were quite easy. And um, when we think about this in the context of minorities and minority experiences, how did these soldiers, drawn as they were from across the Habsburg Empire, view their relationship to the local populace? And conversely, how did their activities influence local perceptions of Austro-Hungary, Austro-Hungarian rule itself, um, especially, I'm thinking, in the run-up to and during the First World War? Oh, I suppose it depends on the individual. Um, some soldiers, such as the architect, future architect, he wasn't known at this time, Richard Neutra, who was from Vienna, um, spent his time as a soldier in Herzegovina, learning Bosnian, drawing local scenes, speaking to people, and he left a a rather good memoir, so we we know quite a lot about his his life there. About local perceptions, I think it would be fair to say that resentment of the Habsburg presence didn't go away and was nourished by frequent contact with Montenegro and Serbia by the Orthodox population. 
And this support for the neighbouring kingdoms cost the population of the border villages very dearly in August 1914, when many were executed for their apparent treachery. During the war, there were border skirmishes between Montenegrins and the Habsburg troops, which had ended when Montenegro was conquered in January 1916. And it's these these forts and garrisons in, in Herzegovina, which are used as the launch point for the war against Montenegro. Um, but for the local population during the war, the biggest challenge was, was food supplies, which had already started to dwindle midway through the war. And also some local people were interned in a camp near Chopron, and many died there. So it's, it's a very tough time. Um, the, the First World War in Herzegovina. And just to quickly uh, qualify, presumably those being interned in that camp were right, would be identified as Serbs or Orthodox? Yes, um, from villages close to the border with Montenegro. So the areas in between the states where the majority of the population were Orthodox were regarded with suspicion um, by the um, Habsburg authorities, partly because, you know, they found it very difficult to actually patrol and police the border area because of the uh, sympathies of the local population and their and their deep um, connection with the Orthodox world. So almost something, so you might say almost something like um, what would later be termed fifth columnists or... Well, that's how they're perceived. But these are people who, who are live, who've lived in this region for, for, for very many centuries. I mean, the Balkans as a whole, we see that migrations and movements of population are incredibly important. The long term effect of, of Ottoman control was that people moved around. So it's very difficult to talk about indigenous populations. But the Orthodox population in this border region between Herzegovina and Montenegro have been there a very long time. They don't want the Ottomans and they don't want the Habsburgs either. They want to they want to have rule from from Orthodox kingdoms. They're great admirers of the, the, the Montenegrin king, um, Nicola. So they, they they're actually expressing some kind of political will by resisting um the Habsburgs. You can call it fifth column column columnist, but it's it's a, it's really about language and how and how you uh, um, use it. Obviously, I was just kind of thinking how the uh, the authorities themselves would have probably been projecting. Um, Indeed, yeah. and that and that's precisely how how they saw it, and 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 they they realised that they had um, a, a difficult population that that wasn't going to be easily controlled on their hands. And um, on the other hand, they did rely more and more on the on the real loyalty and commitment of the Catholic and Muslim populations who were very pro Habsburg and 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 this long term legacy of the mistrust between the, the peoples of Herzegovina carries on into the twentieth century and, and into the into the late twentieth century. This divide and rule policy which it becomes from the Habsburg monarchy sets the tone for the rest of the twentieth century. So we now arrive in the autumn of 1918 and Austro-Hungary has effectively collapsed or is at least politically moribund, so to speak. Um, What was the fate of Bosnia-Herzegovina following the end of the Great War um, or the Great War in the Balkans, at least? And what would you consider to be the legacies of the Habsburg occupation, especially in the southern territories of Herzegovina and Dalmatia? 
and those border regions. Well, they're quickly all incorporated into the new kingdom of Serbs, Croats and Slovenes, which later becomes Yugoslavia, which is under the Karajorjevic dynasty. So this is a big change for the local population um, being ruled by a new new dynasty. Um, and a, this is a time when a lot of Orthodox people return to Herzegovina and Dalmatia. They, they had gone away. A lot of them had gone to the Americas, to South America, and they re- they return in the 1920s. So there's investment and renewal from this population. Trebinia, for example, got a high school, and the Tverdosh Monastery, which had been a ruin for for centuries, was repaired in the 1920s. So we see, um, you know, a, a, an era of of renewal. But um, this state, new state, also built on the old. The legacies of the ha- Habsburg occupation are everywhere: vineyards roads, the relics of the railway network that was built around 1901, abandoned forts and garrisons everywhere, plain trees, primary schools, colleges, newspapers, inns that serve alcohol. I mean, it's it's incredible that the 40 years that they were there, they changed so very much and you can still see that legacy now. But just, um, again, just sort of going, thinking back on our on the previous question, um, politically, you would say the general population being largely of Orthodox or identifying as Serbs, would you say they probably welcomed the departure of the Habsburgs or what, or the remnants of the Habsburg occupation? Or is it a lot more complicated as so many things seem to be in the Balkans? Well, I have resisted saying that the majority of the population were orthodox because of course it depends where you are in Herzegovina because if you look at the towns and cities if they if we can call them cities they're quite small (laughs) um they're generally um muslim dominated so Trebinia which of course now has a very small muslim population um was known I think um amongst travellers and in descriptive literature as Turkish Trebinia. And people visited Trebinia in order to be able to see um, a a bit of the remnants of the Ottoman Empire. So it's mosques and uh, the uh, Ottoman era bridge. So while it's fair to say that um, along the border areas, the majority of the population is... Orthodox. This is not the case for for urban settlements. So I think that the com- the complexity of Bosnia and Herzegovina, with its mixed populations, and um, has has to be recognised. But I think you're right. I mean, probably the uh, the Orthodox population is more enthusiastic about the Karadjordjevic dynasty than the other people who live in Herzegovina. And finally, where can people go to learn more about this topic? Well, there are some really excellent books on Herzegovina. Um, Hannes Granditz um, wrote about the late Ottoman period and really studied the people and customs of the region in depth. So there's a lot of fantastic detail in his book. More recently, Heiner Grunet has written about religion and church organisation. Um, if we're looking at the, the rebellions and the uprisings, Milorad Ek- Ekmacic wrote about them and um, Esad Arnautovic wrote a history of Trebinia. For material in English, there's less available, but there's, there's some really uh, fascinating um, work by Charles Yelovich 
uh, John Schindler, who's written about the, the military occupation, as, as well as Wayne Vucinic, who was an American who, who had his origins in, 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 in the region and, and wrote some fascinating uh, material about Bielicza in particular. And an article on the garrison at Bielicza by me is forthcoming in an edited book by Dr. Samuel Foster to be published <laughs> by Routledge. You might be familiar with his work. Um, yep, I'd just say, uh, in that, to that I'd say, uh, watch this space. <laughs> thank you <laughs> very Carmichael, thank, thank you very, you very, very much. much. Thank Thanks, you. Samuel, yeah.